0: I'm perry farrell i'm at frederick stroges home studio
1: and it's called strage is the name of this podcast and i'm super psyched to have you here okay thank you <laughs> welcome <laughs> well, welcome indeed. perry thank you it's great to be here what made you start lollapalooza back in 1991 it was uh, a
0: little frustration artistic frustration so i was then in Jane's addiction, and we had put out the album Ritual de lo habitual, and uh, but we had been at odds with each other, and although we had put out a what I considered a, a beautiful recording, the band um, person personally was not getting along, which was a, a a shame, but I thought this was going to be my last tour with Jane's Addiction. And so I went to my um, booking agent, Mark Geiger, at William Morris Agency, and told him this will be the last tour I'll do with Jane's Addiction. And he said, well, then you should make it very special. What would you like to do? And I started writing a list down. I wanted hot air balloons, and I wanted... uh, art galleries and everything. So that's what led me to creating Lollapalooza.
1: And Jane's Addiction were really big at that point. You were on the, like the, the verge Ascending. of you know, becoming one of the yes. biggest rock bands in the world. Yes, uh, we were at that you time. But you, you fell apart.
0: Well, it's more that we fell apart. We, we uh, it, it had a, a, an internal combustion explosion.
1: And on the very first night of the Lollapalooza tour, uh, you um, got into a fist fight with your guitarist. Yeah, it wasn't fist, it was more like no, no wrestling. <laughs> wrestling. It was wrestling
0: body slams. <laughs> how, how did that come about? Um, well, well, the, really what led up to it was, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with we were over overworked and uh, underrested. And constantly being pushed, you know, go out there on stage, go out there on stage, and we were also all drug addicts. So we, our first show was in um, Phoenix, Arizona. with very hot weather there in the summer; it was in the hundreds. So, uh, Dave needed to get off the stage, you if you if you know what I mean. And Because uh, he was... Yeah, he wasn't feeling well. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't quite as understanding as I would be today about it. And we had given them, the audience, a, a short show. So I, I asked them, you know, no, we can't... This was like a 45-minute show. We were giving them, and we were headlining. It wasn't enough time. So I said, no, we've, we've got to go out there. And Dave was... Say, "Oh, well, I'm finished. You know, I'm done. I'm not going to do it." So the argument got hotter and heated more and more heated about that. And I then I started to insist that he will go out. And he said, no, nah, "I'm not gonna." And then I said, "You will." And then I, uh, you know, in in my um, high school years and college, college, I was a,
1: a wrestler. So uh, I was. You were a wrestler. I was a grappler. Yes, I was okay i wouldn't think that because you have a very you know slender yes but i wrestled
0: people my own size so but i knew how to leverage bodies oh you know how to body slam yes i picked him up and i i did that i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) i I, I find it i i do i do feel like an idiot that i did that but um you know in those moments did you
1: hurt him or was it
0: well he was able to finish the show he got up and we walked out and finished the show. We did two or three more songs, but you know, I'm a different person now.
1: I really remember wanting to go to the Lollapalooza tour in 1991. I was living here in Sweden. I was 17 years old and I was a huge fan of Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, Susie and the Banshees. Yes, Jane's Addiction, and Ice T, who was also playing.
0: Yeah, I noticed. I noticed. So there's uh, interesting that day. Nine Inch Nails was having big troubles with their equipment because it was overheating. And a lot of their music was on track. Back in those days, it was somewhat of a mystical uh, scenario for people like me and Henry Rollins. We watched them and we didn't understand quite why They were their equipment overheated, and then Trent went and just started to smash his keyboard and throw his keyboards all over the stage. We didn't understand why he was doing that, but later I it's like, well, that's a good way to. It's a grand finale if your if your music isn't going to come out of the speakers, you might as well just
1: throw a tantrum. Because they had like sequences sort yes. of at that point. No, yes. no, no deaths or anything, because sequences overheat right. easily. But, right. But I, I find it fascinating that something so chaotic became something so endurable. Like yeah. you know, because you were perhaps not the most well organized person right. back in 1991, and still right. you created Lollapalooza, which is still around. Yeah, and has spread yeah to different countries.
0: Well, it goes to show you that what is most important is intent intention i was not the most organized um, but my intentions were very true my intention was to create art and bring it to the subculture bring it out into the light so the subculture could have a a day in the sun and here we are
1: (laughs) where did you get the name lollapalooza
0: well, back in those days, nineteen ninety was when I was uh, the inception of it. it was a very fertile time for the for the world. Um, it was the first year that the World Wide Web was um, set up, and people started to use the internet. Um, but we, but for the most part, I got my words um, from. Dictionaries. So I would thumb through dictionaries. So
1: that's a Look, word? It actually yes, means something? Yes. What's the Lollapalooza?
0: It means something or someone great and or wonderful. And then the second definition is a giant swirling lollipop. <laughs> <laughs> that's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. Sunday morning. Hello, this is Perry Farrell. From Lollapalooza, Kind Heaven, Jane's Addiction And we're about to play Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground By my side Early dawning Sunday morning It's just the wasted years so close behind I always think about Sunday morning because um, I think about waking up on a Sunday morning after uh, we would do a performance in a club and um, we would have partied Saturday night really hard and wake up and I would put on the velvet underground and listen to Sunday morning and it just reminds me of that Wilton house that we all lived in. And all the people would go after the show back to the Wilton house. And <laughs> you wake up with people on your bed. It's exciting. And you really feel like, man, this is the life. It's all the streets you cross, not so long ago.
1: So where was
0: the Wilton House? It's in Los Angeles, in L.A., um, almost on the outskirts of uh, Silver Lake, which is a very hipster place, but we were just outside of it. I had found um, the expression we use in America is a white elephant of a a home. A white elephant, to describe what a white elephant is, is a, a home that is very large, and you could fit in a lot of your friends who are musicians, but they cannot, the uh, landlords cannot sell this home because it's either run down or it's in a, now it has become a bad neighborhood. Back in the glory days of Hollywood, uh, this home was in a place that, uh, it was near Paramount Studios, so... So the uh, actors would either rent these homes in this neighborhood. It wasn't far from people like Mae West had an apartment penthouse nearby, but the 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 neighborhood had gotten run down, and of course most people moved to Beverly Hills or or um, um, out to the beach Malibu. But so anyway, I had this. I found this six bedroom white elephant and the landlord could only sell it to a person like myself and not sell it i rented it and then i brought in all the musicians that um were on the on the on the come-ups in in hollywood so people young young groups and uh we all collectively would rehearse in the garage of the wilton house and that's
1: that's what the Wilton House was. There's a special stage called Perry Stage at all mm-hmm. Lollapalooza festivals. Do you pick out the artists for, for that stage? I conceived the stage somewhat,
0: and I have many uh, friends and uh, co workers that work specifically on the booking of the various stages, and then they specifically zone in on the type of music that would be played at that stage. So I don't, I don't uh, do it daily. Um, I'm not in the office on a daily basis, but we will have discussions about things. And for the most part, um, I have a production, a great production team that uh, has more information than I do about these things. But uh, And happily so, because that allows me, it frees me to continue to be an artist
1: and create my own art. And if you go to Lollapalooza and you see something on Perry stage that you don't like, it's not as if you go up on stage and kick them off. Me? Yes.
0: No, it, no. here's what I would, I would never do that because artists, oh, we are a sacred brotherhood and we... We uh, love each other. We're a um, symbol of humanitarianism and brotherhood and sisterhood. And so uh, anybody that would be performing at Lollapalooza, they're my brother or my sister. We're going to listen now to David Bowie singing Hang On To Yourself.
1: Oh, that's a great track. Yes. When did you
0: discover David Bowie? Oh, I discovered David Bowie in high school, in like probably around 1972, 73. I'm that old, believe it or not. And um, yeah, David Bowie and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop—they uh, were—they were giants, or I could say they were titans in my era, glam. Was known to certain parts of my high school that I frequented. It's the it's the kids that sat on the wall, smoked cigarettes, and cut class, and did more than that. But we loved Bowie and T Rex, Bay City Rollers. Oh yeah,
1: that's just like the biggest boy band of the early seventies. Yeah, people don't really remember them (laughs) because you know boy bands don't go down in history the same way as. Right. Glam rock bands, too, but they were pretty good. They were pretty good,
0: and they had a great look to them. But anyway, that was the glam era, and um, we were into it.
1: Speaking of David Bowie, you work with his legendary producer Tony Visconti on your new solo album, Kind Heaven. Mm -hmm. What's he like in the studio? Oh,
0: he's just what you would imagine. He uh, is very kind, but concentrated, focused, and creative. So, you can count on Tony to produce an incredible record that will come out like
1: you've dreamt it would I know that one of your first jobs was to impersonate David Bowie at a modeling agency in LA yeah David Bowie and Frank Sinatra and Mick Jagger that's a very odd way to like, <laughs> enter the music industry
0: well yes but I wasn't looking to be a musician I was I guess you would call discovered by a woman who was She ran a modeling show, and she also was kind of a madam. Really? Yes. Okay, so... um, But I didn't know that part. (laughs) Until you went on
1: your first job.
0: Yes. (laughs) And they expected to... Yeah, well, she just said, would you like to make some more money? Of course, I had very little money. So, of course, and what do I have to do? Just come to this party on this yacht? Dressed as David Bowie. No, no. That, um, I dressed as David in um, this private nightclub that she, did, she put the shows on. She did modeling shows. And I said to her, she asked me if I was a model, and I lied. And I said, I am. Why not, right? And, uh, and I wanted to see where the conversation would lead. And I said, I could, I could make your show really good i can impersonate i you know i do impersonations of david bowie i'm an actor i'm a singer so she allowed me to do those things for the show and i became the star of the show
1: <laughs> but the the escort thing what did that feel like was it like uh, um what am i doing yeah i felt or, a
0: little awkward yeah and uh, things got worse and worse. I was only into that scene for a very short time and it wasn't for me. Did you
1: tell your parents about Would it wouldn't it? be my fate? No no because well, your, your father was a jeweler, right he worked with me yes the my jewelry. father was,
0: yes, my father was a jewelry designer and he had uh, a small store uh, in in New York City he had a booth on West 47th, which is known as the Diamond District. Have you ever been to New York City? Yeah, a lot of times. So you know the Diamond District where you go for jewelry? He had a booth there and we moved down to Miami Beach. And he had a small store
1: in Hallandale, which is just outside of Miami. So did your parents want you to like pursue a musical career? Or no, did they have other not plans at all. For you?
0: When I was a young young man, My father wanted me to work with him in the family business. I was a designer. He was a designer as well, so what we did was lost wax casting. That's where you design rings and pendants and links to make into chains that goes around your neck or around your wrist. And he was very good at acetylene torch so he could repair. He could move... uh, Gold and silver around with this blowtorch and make them make the gold and silver into different shapes, heat it up, and it would turn to jelly. And he he would make you know, he worked with diamonds and fine gems, precious metals. But um, later on in his life, when I was graduating high school. He, his business fell off, and he got more and more deeply involved with organized crime. Really, um. yes. Well, he always kind of had a clientele that he had people that were in the entertainment industry and in the organized crime, uh, in, in organized crime, they were always kind of. On the outskirts of, um, in New York, where he grew up, which was Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, he grew up with uh, some of the biggest mobsters in history. So,
1: was that back when there were like Jewish mobsters as yes,
0: well? Because there still are. Yeah. But yes, in those days, yes, um, the Jewish mobsters. He grew up going to high school with them, the, the Lansky brothers. were in his grade so you know in the jewelry industry if you wanted to you could fence stolen gems if you wanted to so i'm sure that my father uh, these guys might bring him fenced items but he was really an artist as well is he still alive no he died. But but the reason that I didn't pursue the family business was they eventually, he they came into our business more and more. And eventually, um, my father was invested in the numbers racket and then lost the family fortune. So my father didn't tell me all this, but... He just, uh, when I, I asked him, hey, I'm graduating high school now, D- Dad, and I would like the money that I've been working my whole life for to go on. I was going to take a surf trip, and he said, I had no money for you. What are you talking about? And me being a young man, 17 years old, I didn't, I didn't understand because he was too proud to tell me about he had lost all of, all of our money, to the mob. And his name was Bernstein. Berenstetcher, really, originally. Oh. Berenstetcher, which um, means a kind, handsome entertainer. Isn't that crazy? That's my real last name. Well, so you... they, they made it, in short, they they said Bernstein, Berenst- But Ber- it's Beren-
1: if you, yeah, And you picked the name Peripheral. F- so you would sound like peripheral. peripheral. Someone who's peripheral, who's on the outskirts of something, or right. on, on the edge of, of, of yes. something. Yes, a person who.
0: Yeah, I like to. <laughs> I was about to say I like to watch, um, but I do. <laughs> I like to. I like to um, notice and have the, the be relaxed enough to kind of zone into seeing what other people are doing and not always being watched myself but watching others like i do at Lollapalooza. you see i perform yes but i also love almost as much
1: to watch the groups and to listen to them i listened to your very first band psycom which was yeah. this post-punk
0: kind yeah. of goth- gothic yeah uh, yeah
1: LA band and it sort of reminded me of um, this band Bauhaus absolutely we love Bauhaus this is Bela Lugosi's Dead
0: White on white some Black case Back on
1: the rack <laughs> Bela Lugosi's Dead The bats have left the bell
0: tower The victims have been bled that velvet line
1: the black the black box. Box. The is dead. You've worked with uh, the Bauhaus bass player David J on uh, several tracks, both yeah. in Jane's Addiction. And, and
0: you know, in Porn um, for um, Daniel
1: Pyros. played on one of these great tracks from
0: Porno for Pyros called uh, "Porpoise Head," one of my favorite tracks from pyros
1: so you were quite into goth in the early 80s yeah i liked it a lot still do did you see Bauhaus live
0: back then i never got to see them but one of our first tours was opening up for love and rockets did you know that
1: no i didn't know that yeah but i I really love them me too uh, i i was on my way to see peter murphy here in stockholm late last year um I, I never made it to the concert, but he he was thrown out of his own show because he got into a fight with the bouncers after th- throwing bottles at the audience. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a mess. Uh, but he, he was spectacular on stage, yeah. I'm, I'm told. Your first concert with Psycom was in front of a hot dog stand in Hollywood. It's w- true. W- how did that come about? Well, so I fell in with the
0: art community, the... Um, yeah. The art community, downtown artists of Los Angeles, and uh, they, of course, were they were creating the scene at, in those days with the punk rock and the goth kids. Uh, they we were building the underground. So, um,
1: does that answer your question? Yeah, but how did you get in touch with the hot dog stand?
0: Oh, the hot dog stand. Okay, so we were really castigated from the Sunset uh, Boulevard crowd and uh, musicians like this. At that time, Sunset Boulevard was turning into this spandex hair metal, and um, we were not Into it, and we were also really not welcome to perform at that time up on Sunset Boulevard, where some of the great clubs of Los Angeles were, like um, the Whiskey a Go Go, and there was this club called Gazari's, and there was still the Roxy, and the Roxy still was a a premier place to play, and they were welcoming people like orchestral maneuvers in the dark you know some of the groups were coming over from um the uk and europe and performing at the roxy but for the most part we had to find our own places and uh the, the um the the band psycom was really being led not by me but i auditioned for them they were already in the scene And their attitude was, we will throw parties downtown. If you know of a place where we could play, let's do it. And so somebody, I think I approached, along with Mariska, the keyboard player, I approached the hot dog stand. So I thought it would be a really cool place to play in Hollywood. And we could get people to come for free. And it was really more important, the optics, to get the uh, eyeballs on us, than to try to make money. Here's another interesting point. At that time, there was this attitude called pay-to-play, where, let's say as an example, Gazzari's, you would get the gig, they would say, okay, your, your band can play here. They'd give you a stack of tickets, and then you'd have to pay them $500 to rent the equipment, that's a terrible thing to do to a young, up-and-coming musician. And it's really exploiting it's people's exploit dreams. Of, yeah. Yes. So we wouldn't do that. And n- number two, we didn't have $500. So we, we had to think of other ways to perform. I'm about to play for you one of the great American poets of all time, Iggy Pop's
1: I Gotta Write. I love Iggy Pop, I love the Stooges as well, me too. I read this book by Danny Sugarman called Wonderland Avenue, where he writes a bit about trying to be the manager for Iggy Pop in the early 70s, oh, which was a very hard job. Yeah. Because he would thrash every hotel room and every car that he came in touch with. Yeah. Did he mean a lot to, to you as a performer? Oh, he meant the world to me. He still does. He's one of my greatest heroes.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: You mentioned somewhere that the idea for Kind Heaven, your new solo album, came to you in a dream. And also you said that you started thinking of the prophet Isaiah, who lived in the 8th century and talked about the coming of a messiah, the son of God. Oh wow. Is, is that, is that how you, you know, come up with a lot of ideas by, by dreaming? Well, I,
0: I have, you know, many ideas, but I figure the, the deepest dreams are, uh, they come from the deepest part of your subconscious and that fertile area of your consciousness, um, And I I tend to, yes, I tend to go with those dreams first because I could be astrally projecting someplace, gathering information like an on-location news reporter, if you will. And I could be going forward in time or backwards in time even because I feel, I believe that a soul has the ability to... Entered the fifth dimension, and the soul has ability. Once they're in the fifth dimension, to time travel in a, in a different way that that we humans can time travel. We're not that the soul or the people in the fifth dimension are not constrained
1: by time con, time restrictions that we have here on Earth. It's fascinating how you sort of mix up ideas that seem almost like science fiction with the traditional Jewish mysticism yeah
0: well maybe time travel is a part of yeah but time travel to to me i mean yes i'm jewish and um i do study uh jewish mysticism because jewish mysticism has a lot of information about uh the word of god god's god's voice and and the universe um, and it goes deeper it 's almost like studying religion, but studying it as a studying the science, the true science of nature, and that includes all of us and that 's what i really what I really think i 'm studying and what i 'm really interested in, what I am curious about is us, all of us, not just solely Jewish people, although I love Jewish people, but I love you.
1: Just as much as I love my relatives, something that I find fascinating about the Jewish faith is that there really is like a study of the Torah, where people discuss it and debate it and even yeah. even criticize it. It's, yeah. it's not a you know necessarily a worship activity, right? But there's this part where you actually can question the word of God. Well, and you know,
0: check it out. I I, I would suggest that, and I have. You know, you have a picture of Anton LaVey on your wall. I have uh, researched, I I have read everybody's, I am a comparative religion um, studier, so I could consider myself a theologian. Even into the darkest realms of, you know, black magic, I've studied when I was younger, it, it really interested me. And then I just decided to kind of stay away from it because it's like hanging out with a certain crowd that I just felt but there's no real need to, to hang out with that crowd. It's just what will it lead to? So I, I went on and I've read, you know, I've read the, the Gita, I've read um, Book of Mormon. I've read, you know, um, the Quran. I've read New Testament. So I have a pretty good grasp. I've read uh, Buddhism. I have a pretty good grasp of the major religions in the world, what they are um, saying. Let's listen to some Depeche Mode. All right. You know what I was going to say? Personal Jesus. Reach out. Touch faith. Well, let's play Personal Jesus. Okay, Personal Jesus. I was going to suggest that. How synchronous that, right? How serendipitous.
1: Big Depeche Mode fan, and I remember reading about how Dave Gahn went to see Jane's Addiction on the Lollapalooza tour in 1991 and he had some kind of epiphany there. He um, realized that he wanted to play a new kind of music, that he wanted to you know, rock out. Wow. So he, he grew his beard and he got tattoos <laughs> and he developed a not, you oh, know, wow. not so healthy lifestyle. Um, uh, did you meet him back then? You know. I'll tell you a really weird
0: story. And so we went to the UK for the first time. We were going to do one of the big festivals that I ended up to cancel. Unfortunately, I didn't have my voice. When I came across the pond, I performed this small little club, lost my voice, and I remember seeing Dave kind of almost waving at me as I went from the stage to the dressing room, like he wanted to meet me, but I was kind of rushed through. And I remember somebody saying, "You know, Dave Gahan wants to meet you." And but by then I was in the door inside the dressing room, and I never got to meet him. When I, I then, of course, years later I
1: did. But so that your story makes sense to me. <laughs> I remember seeing this picture of him in a t-shirt with the, the cover of uh, Nothing's Shocking, Jane's Addiction's second album. Well, I love Depeche Mode too.
0: And Martin is fantastic. They're all great. They're all great people, but um, uh, I'm, it's kind of great that you also... Had this notion. Let's play the Pesh mode.
1: <laughs> well, I kind of always have the Pesh mode in my head. So really? it's not a coincidence. Yeah, they're almost they're almost <laughs> perfect. <laughs> uh, anyway, Dave Gahan said this about Jane's Addiction after seeing you live. He said, and I quote: "It was the most incredible thing I'd seen in a very long while. Sometimes they were really shit, and sometimes <laughs> they were just so mountainous and fantastic." Oh, no, that's true. That's accurate. Dave Gahan went from electronic music to rock and roll. You kind of went the opposite (laughs) direction in the 90s when you started to DJ and play house and techno. Yeah. How did you get into electronic music? Let me think about that. Well, you know, being
0: just a a huge music fan and all of a sudden future sounds of London and The Orb um, and Orbital and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all came upon them uh around 1990, 91 and I was so fascinated the music was so very different but there was a there was a connection the link was dub so I was I a lo- dub
1: reggae yes
0: I'd fallen in love with Lee Scratch Perry and um on you the on you sound uh King Tubby Prince Farai, Mad Professor, and of course Lee Scratch Perry.
1: Yeah, that's really music that that you can lose yourself in. It's so mind blowing. I remember when and I heard somewhat that,
0: shamanistic too. Yes. but electronic, and and also it had the organic. It had the uh, analog mixed in with the digital, and that's where I think Dave and you know. Uh, Du, reggae dub um, and, and uh, orb all intersect is our love of taking people somewhere. It's almost shamanistic, but using digital, <laughs> using technology. So it's
1: a really exciting
0: um, medium to work within
1: as it's, an artist. It's funny that, you know, William Gibson, the writer, mm-hmm. he, he mentions dub in Neuromancer his like cyberpunk novel sure I've read Neuromancer it's interesting how you know dub reggae connects something very futuristic to something very you know earthy and and religious yeah
0: but when I say religious I mean their religion is one of the greatest religions of of all time should we listen to some dub reggae yes what dub reggae track would you pick I'll tell you what do uh adrian sherwood something by adrian
1: sherwood this is starship bahia remember reading about how Lee Perry would, you know, record something and then buried the master tapes in the ground in his garden so that they would be, you know, no. f- full... Of Earth? Well, no, no. He, he buried the, the master tapes underground so that they would, you know, receive some kind of holy power wow, from Mother Earth. Really? So he had them, you know, buried in the ground for a few days until wow. he sent them off to the record company. Oh my God. I'm, I'm, that might be a myth, but I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Back when grunge was sweeping the whole world, and a lot of people looked quite plain in lumberjack shirts, you looked like this androgynous Ziggy Stardust, <laughs> surfer, shamanic creature. How, how much do you think about style and fashion these days?
0: I I hate to admit that I'm a, such a fashion whore. <laughs> because, because if we're... Um you know, talking about mysticism and es- escaping the mundane world and not caring about, you know, mundaneness of of uh, trivial things like clothing and articles of clothing. But I, I just love to dress up. <laughs> yeah, I, I waste so much time. You did Dressing up. Oh, yeah. I'm always late. And you're wearing very nice sneakers today. Thank you. They're like... They're like, um, what do you call it? Miami Vice meets
1: Buffalo Star. The
0: the heels are pretty chunky. They're Fluvogs, John Fluvog. I was just in Toronto, where John Fluvog lives, and I was looking for uh, platform shoes,
1: and these appeared in the window. (laughs) And they're pink and turquoise. No, Salmon. Salmon, sorry. Salmon
0: Salmon and white, turquoise and smoke. Smoke platform, which is like a light gray.
1: Bands like Jane's Addiction and maybe the Pixies and Sonic Youth pushed the music that was called alternative rock into like the mainstream in the late 80s. Yeah. Um, Do you still think that the word alternative means something or is is it... uh, difficult to use it these days li-
0: well i like the term because i believe the term came about because we were all beginning to discuss discuss alternative energy that era was the era when the consciousness of of many was um tuning into alternate alternatives to petroleum and you know gas and those types of energies, nuclear, into wind and solar and thermo, thermo, and so we were talking about alternative energy, alternative energy, and Lollapalooza, as a matter of fact, had a Greenpeace coming along with it, and I had started a, a nonprofit called Voice of the Land where we went to the White House and performed on the White House lawn asking them to do something to help. We had bought acres and acres of land in Costa Rica, rainforest that we left preserved for all time's sake, that nobody can touch that land Um, specifically for, you know, leaving the environment where they could generate oxygen. So the term kind of bled onto the musicians alternative rock because we were alternative to the hair metal spandex that was coming as the result of I think in part New York Dolls. I love the New York Dolls but there were some pop rock giant stadium pop rock. People were trying to attain that and I won't name names of bands because I don't need to and in all honesty Musicians, we're all trying as hard as we can to entertain you. So there's no reason to pick on anybody. But the, the, um, the lyrics, I think also the intentions of those groups was just, um, it was stale. You know, trying to be rock stars for, for being a rock star's sake wasn't very interesting. And I think it was generating uninteresting music as a result. The alternative kids we still looked up to our idols were the you know the punks, the Sex Pistols, and the Clash, and Joey and the Ramones, and those guys. Um, and so we weren't really after fame so much as we were after to leave an impression. Make an impression
1: on uh, the art community subculture. It's fascinating how how the word alternative came from your environmental yeah you know activities yeah because you you went to Ten Downing Street in two thousand seven yes. and met with Tony Blair and I to, spoke to, 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 inside uh, of Ten Downing Street uh, on a um,
0: he brought out this I guess you would call it a step stool maybe a tailor if you ever went to a tailoring. House or a store, and they get you to stand up on a a box, like a k- crate. And this was like uh, a crate that had a velvet padding, and I stood up on it. I was it was only like a foot. So you and had this, to
1: stand on that thing. Yeah, to this man came him?
0: out with a proper wig, powder wig, and he put it down, <laughs> and he told me he just like put his hands out and pointed to it, like, "All right, now you think." you've got something to say, well, say it now.
1: So it's a and, bit like know, in Speaker's Corner in Hyde yeah, Park where you stand on a... Yes, but I was at Tony Downing.
0: Okay. Tony Blair was there and you know who else was there? Um, Roger Taylor was there. Oh. And... Um, from Pink Floyd? No. F- no, from, from Queen. Queen. Queen, of course. Yes, Sorry. and, and um, Brian May. And you were talking about the global warming. Yes, I was trying to impress them to help uh, ease the uh, effects of global warming, to do something, you know. Well, yes, I tried. And what ended up happening was I didn't succeed right then and there, but I haven't given up, of course. But at that time, I was going to try to put a concert together, and I was requesting their help and their money, and they ended up doing
1: a yacht race
0: instead. (laughs)
1: this is a song by Patti Smith called Summer Cannibals
0: as this street beneath my feet, descending into air
1: I've sometimes thought of Patti Smith when I see you perform because you have like some kind of way of Summoning pagan spirits on stage. I'm not sure and she also, you know, she performs barefoot a lot of times, which I've seen you do as well But I I heard this story that she played at kids palooza She did the the children's area of Lollapalooza once and she wanted to Teach the children about the important issues in the Middle East. Well, What, 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 what happened? I think it's I wouldn't use the word teach because she
0: was very emotional and it was more of a, an emotional reaction. That day, that morning, um, there had been an exchange of bombs from Lebanon into Israel, and Israel returned fire and was bombing back. And she got up there and yelled into the microphone, Israel's throwing bombs at Lebanon! Lebanon! and this and is the, the kids, kids area of Lollapalooza. Yeah, so it's not at Lollapalooza. I've I have this setup where if you have children who are 9 years or younger, you they can come in for free. And I have an area for them, the Kids of Palooza area where they can learn how to make music, learn how to produce music. They can do crafts, they can get mohawks, they can dye their hair. Um basically they can punk out. And so she was playing there, and I was her backline. I was her roadie. So I was sitting there waiting for her and, you know, giving her a towel and water and this and that,
1: and she just lost it. So how did the kids react?
0: I saw a lot of, like, kids that were ready to cry because they didn't know how to handle it. You know, like, even my boys now, my boys are 15 and 17, and I still got to slow down because I have to remember they've only been conscious for like 10 12 years as a as a human being but you can imagine kids that are 9 they don't know what the heck that even means but she was really um you know into angry it was anger that's what what I I had to kind of like
1: Dispel. This was the first band that you saw live.
0: All our times have come, here but now they're Seasons don't feel the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain.
1: Through the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, where did you
0: go see them? Where'd At that time, I was living in Miami. I was going to high school, and I started to go con- to concerts down in uh, Miami Beach. They came through there. They and Tom Petty and the Cars that they all came right around the. You know, that was the first year I started to go to concerts. So I don't know what year that might have been. Seventy. Seventy two, something like that.
1: So, what were the Blue Oyster cult like live? I did it leave a big impression on you? Oh, yeah, because they had lasers. They did a laser. Lasers
0: back in the 70s? Yeah, they had a laser light show. I remember to this minute, the laser that came off of the guy's guitar. It was like a ruby or something like that. I don't know what it was, but while he played guitar, it came off of his guitar, came out of his guitar. And then this square, this like laser square was over our head, almost like you can almost touch the the square, but it was a laser so you can put your hand through it and of course there was this diffused light from smoke that came up so i was just enamored and hypnotized by rock
1: and then you went to see led zeppelin a few years later mm-hmm. a concert which was cut short for some reason what what happened
0: so my friends and i we had lived um one of my friends, we call him Broder, because that was his last name. Broder's sister was going to college up in Tallahassee, I believe, or Tampa. And Led Zeppelin, as close as we could get to them, was the show in a stadium up at Tampa. So we all jumped into Broder's station wagon, his mom's station wagon. And it was probably three or four hour drive. And we were going to get to see the mighty Led Zeppelin. That was our favorite group. We knew everything about Led Zeppelin. We would wait for their records to come out. You know, months in advance, we'd hear that the record was coming. And so you couldn't have been more excited to see a group in your life. And Florida rains a lot. So we were in that stadium. We were back about, oh, we were near the cheap seats. Maybe we were in the cheap seats. They were not specks, but I could see them. They were as big as your pinky fingernail. And out they come, and the first song they did was (laughs) I have a dream. That's it. And when they slow down, I have a dream. And it was my dream to see them. And all of a sudden, it starts to pour, Florida style, where it's almost, they have hurricanes down there. In fact, the college uh, team is called the, Mi- uh, the Miami Hurricanes in Miami. So it started raining harder and harder. And after one song, that song. I think they might have tried to get off one more. They said, um, Robert Plant said to the audience, we're going to take a break because of the rain. Are you cool? And we all went, yeah, we're cool. And then they walked off the stage quickly. And we were talking to each other. Wow, what's going This is amazing. Oh, my God, it's raining so damn hard. And then after five minutes, nothing was happening. All of a sudden, we hear this sound. And we look over the stage, behind the stage, by about 100 feet, a helicopter picking up, lights in the helicopter waving around the stadium <laughs> and take off and I tell you I could tell tell, uh oh I don't think they're coming back they never did what a sad story yeah you're about to hear a Transmission by Joy Division
1: Radio live transmission Radio live transmission When did you hear them for the first time
0: Well you remember that crew of Downtown artists and musicians That I told you about In Los Angeles So this was 19 My first band was in, Formed in 1982 So 1981 Thereabouts I mean 1982 is when I First started to perform But prior, just prior to that I was looking around for a group to sing and what i would do is i would look in the free la weeklies and in the back of them they had a band section you know band looking for singer must like psychedelic furs joy division cure so i auditioned for those groups and um ran into rich evac who was our bass player And he was the smart, intelligent guy who, he was married to Mariska, but he was a smart, intelligent musician who started to turn me on to Joy Division, Bauhaus, and all these other uh, amazing subculture musicians, and, and also authors, you know, William Gibson, William S. Burroughs, um... Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, anyway, yeah, um, I fell in love with Joy Division to the point where I was working at that time as a graphic artist. And I worked at a graphic arts house. It's hard to explain, but back in those days, graphic artists didn't have the luxury of resizing their fonts uh, on, on software, to, you know, to the touch of a button. They had to go to a graphic arts house, and we had these big cameras they called stat cameras. So I remained in a dark room all day shooting stats for people. And I also did cards for people, you know, personal cards... Your handout, and and for uh, magazines, I did artwork and and posters and things like that. But I would stay in the in the dark room, listening to Joy Division,
1: over and over. And Joy Division in the dark room—that's the perfect place. Yeah.
0: Well, Frederick, I need to be on my way. I am going down to the grounds of the inaugural Lollapalooza here in Sweden. So it's been great speaking with you, and I hope that you'll come down and join me at my compound. I sure will. Thank
1: you for coming over, Perry. It's been a true honor. Thank you. Same here.